Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I want to raise a uh, fundamental question today, and that is apart from the gospel, do people have access to God? That is, can, and can they know God and can they have a right moral understanding? Sort of our discussion in Sunday school. And one answer would be yes, that all people everywhere, they have a positive experience of God and they have access to some moral law. The other answer would be no, that they don't, that they don't have access to God. And of course, what I'm talking about here is not just an abstract idea, but that is, can we as individuals, even, you know, as Christians, can we discern an authentic experience of God from an inauthentic experience of God? Can we arrive, can I arrive at a right moral ideal apart from Christ? The Bible does not give us a clear, and this is what I'm going to explain to you. I don't think it gives us yes or no to either of these questions, either the moral law or a religious understanding. In philosophy of religion and apologetics, there are what is called the moral or religious arguments for God, and they proceed from the idea that there's a universally, that people have access. They would answer this question, yes, that there's universal access to morality and to understanding who God is. And interestingly, that's the common Christian answer to this question. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes the moral argument. He says, well, there must be a universal moral law or else ethical or moral disagreements would make no sense. You know, you stepped on my toe, why'd you do that? And moral criticism would be meaningless. We just kind of naturally have this. It would be unnecessary. And from there, he says, well, there seems to be a moral law, and we can say there must be a moral law giver, and God has made us like himself, instilling a universal moral law within us. In other words, it's a a kind of argument for God. There's a religious argument that proceeds along the same line, extrapolating from, well, it seems like all people are religious, Maybe there's a kind of sui generis or just a given, you know, religious experience that all people have. And you can say, well, then God must exist. This is taken up in this presumption is taken up in modern religious studies in positing the notion of a sui generis. And all that word means is that there's a kind of experience that all people have in and of itself and religions then extrapolate from that. All religions can be traced to the same source. And the presumption of behind the moral argument is taken up in modern ethical studies. If you go study ethics at Mizzou, the primary work of the ethicist is ethical quandaries. Given this situation, what should you do? And it seems to reduce ethics to human decision and will. And in both instances, there is the presumption that the impetus to morality and religion 
can be extracted from the particulars of culture. You know, maybe pure reason or some sort of pure transcendental experience. As if there is a universal reason and experience not mediated by culture. So let's turn and look at the Bible to answer this question. And to answer it, first of all, to talk about religion, it may sound strange, but actually religion is not a term that appears very much in the Bible. In the English Standard Version, it talks about the Jewish religion. It'll talk about the, even Christianity. But let's look together. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2. And here Paul is talking about what he calls self-made religion. That he's, go he's going to describe religion. And in the description, this religion is masochistic. Chapter 2, verse 20. With Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then look at another verse, Colossians 2 verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And so he uses the word religion here. He's describing idolatrous religion, or he may be describing Christianity gone bad in verse 20, in which Judaizers or some other group are coming in, and they're trying to make a kind of legalistic religion of Christianity. In verse 5, he's equating idolatrous religion with human desire. And so he's saying that religion is a projection of people in this instance. He's not saying that's always what religion is, but he's saying there's religion that's just anthropology. People make it up, and it has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with truth. In the 1800s, Ludwig Feuerbach, he says religion is just a projection of man. And, of course, Paul would say, that's true of some religion, but not all religion. If religious experience cannot be extracted from culture, is there just some sort of universal religious experience, or do we have experience according to the culture that we're in? I mean, that's really a question. That's a biblical question. Because the Jews and the Christians and the idolaters, is there some sort of uniform, natural experience? I don't think the Bible gives some sort of grand pronouncement. It doesn't just cancel every religious story. It doesn't say, oh, it's all of the demons. It does with some religions. It affirms that some are true. It corrects some that are harmfully wrong. And it completes some, showing, well, you know this much, now you need to know more. So that Christianity intersects with the cultures of the world. We'll see Paul on the Areopagus, you know, in Athens. 
And he quotes the religious poets. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. He says, your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting pagan poets. And so Paul's capable of doing both things. He knows the pagan religion and he appreciates parts of it. Now he does go on in that sermon to say, and you have here a God to the unknown God. And he says, what you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. And so he completes the religion. He says, you know some stuff, but you don't know enough stuff. There is the idea, well, there's just some sort of universal experience, the the idea of the holy, and that this gives rise to the religious experience. And clearly in what I've said, that can't be the case. Paul, look at Romans, he describes in chapter 1, claiming to be wise, this is verse 22, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So they're very religious and it has nothing to do with God, right? And so my point here is the Bible is in fact more complicated than modern thought. I think as modern people we just want to say one thing about everybody. There is religion that is idolatrous, there's religion based on human desire, there's religion that some may say some true things, but it comes to the wrong conclusion. And then there is religion, as James puts it, that produces good practices, feeding orphans and widows. On the other hand, the Bible does seem to teach that there is a uniform moral experience. And it ain't good. <laughs> Look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. He's saying, okay, you were deluded. Don't feel too bad about it. We were all deluded. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. This almost sounds religious here, but we could duplicate this passage several times over. You know, Paul says, all are unrighteous. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul's point in Romans is that not even the Jews, Jewish religion has not really helped For Paul, the Jewish religion, of course, it's true. But that didn't help morally. And so we have the possibility of having true religion and failed morality. That is that people have perverted and the tendency is to pervert religion. And so one of the ways we could look at idolatrous religion and even the Jewish religion is that they give us an insight into the human moral problem. Let me explain. In Genesis, the word that is used is the word man was created in the image of God. Humans were created. Male and female were created in the image of God. That word that is used, selim, image, is the same word that is used for idols. They also are images. Same Hebrew word. And there is the literal notion of selim, of shadowing forth. It can be used in the case of 
an idol, that someone carves out an idol, hewing out an idol. It's actually the word used in Exodus 34 when the hewing out, Moses is hewing out the Ten Commandments, the stone. And so if we follow what happens to the image in idolatry, I believe we can get a key insight into the predicament that we face in regard to morality and religion. And that is that in the idol, the idolatrous religion, the perspective, in the beginning man was created in the image of God, and then man creates his own image in the idol so that there is a separation. He's no longer the image bearer, but the idol is the image bearer. And there's a disconnectedness from God, obviously. God's not part of the idolatrous relationship, but the idol, literally, as the image, is separated from the man or from the people. And so a way of putting this in universal terms is to say our tselem, our image, our own ego, our I, is now separated from God and from us. That is, we're split within. And idolatrous religion just illustrates that. Here's the people, here's the image, never the twain shall meet, right? And just as an idol is an object, or the I, the ego, it, it's now like an object separated from us. I think this is what Paul is describing in talking about human desire. What is the desire desiring? It desires to find the lost object, to be in possession of the self. In Isaiah 44, it describes the process of an idol making. I won't read the passage, but if you want to look at it, it's in 44.9. And in there, there's a guy making an idol. He's carving it out. He's using metal tools to carve out. But while he's carving out the idol, he gets hungry. And with the same piece of wood that he's chopped in two, he decides he's going to cook some lunch. And so he starts the other half of the log on fire. And so with half of it, he cooks his lunch. And then he turns back, and there's the idol. And he bows down and worships it. And so he's created his own image. And the conclusion in verse 18 they do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. I believe there is religion that blinds us to the truth. There is religion that refuses the reality of God, which sounds strange, right? But isn't that what's being described? Ezekiel 33 pictures the idol like a sexual object. And sex is often used so that the idolatrous relationship is called an adulterous relationship. That is that Israel is an adulterer as she chases after foreign gods. 2320, she lusted after their paramours whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Sort of graphic. That is, that here is this impossible object, and then later on in the chapter, it says that they begin to sacrifice their children. 
to the idol. And so there is this exponential desire and they just begin to give everything. They begin to pass their children through the fire is the way it's described. These are not pagan people. These are Jewish people. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and have profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slaughtered their children for their idols, they entered my sanctuary on the same day to profane it. And lo, thus they did within my house. They're apparently sacrificing their children and going to temple. Now we might look at passages and think, oh, those crude people <laughs> sacrificing their children. But of course we know that more children, more sons and daughters have been slaughtered in our own time than have been slaughtered in all of human history. Right? Just take one episode. Take the Holocaust. Or take the wars of the 20th and 21st century. American children sacrificed to gods of war, to pleasure would easily outnumber all of the victims in all of human history sacrificed to idolatrous religion. And my point here is modern people are worse off in terms of bloodshed and murder than any idolatrous nation. And this brings me back to the point about religious and moral arguments. I believe that the reason, the thought behind these arguments and the violent culture of which we are a part are very much connected. There is an inherent problem to both of the arguments. I'm not just saying, you know, in the, are they legitimate or not legitimate, but in the very form of reason undergirding the arguments. And this reigns, this reigns in religious and secular studies in theological studies. There is the common presumption that there is a universal understanding of religion and this is parallel to the religion and morality of the Bible and so we just kind of instinctively can know the good. We just instinctively know God. And there's no need to challenge our natural impetus or understanding of morality. It's just, it just there. I think this is false. It's a false at several le levels. First of all, it is not true to the deadly nature of religion and morality. That's just on display all around us in all kinds of religions. And it's not true to the biblical depiction of morality and religion. What seems obvious, in our culture it's the atheists who are saying that religion is violent. Well, wait a minute, that's what the Bible says, right? It just, we wouldn't agree with the atheists that all religion needs to be violent, but it is true that religion and violence are very much tied together in the Bible. It's almost as if religion is foundational to humankind and that foundation is murderous. And in turn, morality, you know, maybe it is instinctive and innate that we have this sense of justice, but it's very often justice that's gone wrong. That people are justified in killing their enemies and war, or maybe personally they're justified in committing murder. 
And so human justice, human morality, is connected to the worst forms of evil. People that are truly evil have a good conscience. They're not, they don't suffer a bad conscience because they do it thinking that God approves. Those are the most dangerous people you'll ever meet. And I'm not saying that we can just reduce all morality or all justice to immorality and injustice. I'm just saying that that's the, human, the way that human nature works. And that's certainly the portrayal in the Bible. And so the potential problem with any argument, moral argument or religious argument, is that it imagines that we have some sort of immediate access to the truth. And a specific result of the notion of the moral argument, of the religious argument, is that we can use reason, rationality, and we have the presumption, if I know the right, I can recognize the evil, and I don't need to be informed by the Christian faith. I'm just describing the modern period. Human reason and moral sensibility are thought to be sufficient even by Christians. Well, this was Immanuel Kant. He just says, well, Jesus is just a prototype of what we gain by good thought, good reason otherwise. And so another way of asking about religion and morality is do we have the kind of rational freedom, moral freedom that we're describing here? Are we totally free in terms of will? Can we will the right? Are we totally free in terms of reason? Really what we're describing is, I hope you see, a kind of impossibility. Free of cultural constraint. That is, we're all shaped by the culture that we're a part of. This is Immanuel Kant. He says, act only according to that maxim by which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. And he concludes that if one finds the right and acts on it from good motives, pure will, then you've, you're perfect morally. Voila. <laughs> and then somebody writes him a letter and says, well, now this is interesting. So you're saying that one should always tell the truth. And he says, this guy writes and says, well, what if a murderer is chasing your friend and you're hiding him in your house and they come and knock on the door and say, is he here? And Kant says, well, you should tell the truth, even in that situation. You know, you can't break this law. This begins to sound a little bit evil, given the moral maxim that you should always tell the truth, and there's no exception to it. Well, then you're going to allow an innocent person to die because of your sense of truth. This is what Kant said. I must not lie, even in that situation. Confronted with the temptation to do so, I sense the categorical imperative to always do the, the right as the claim upon my will. I ought to tell the truth for the truth's sake. With that pure motive, without self-interest, I decide to tell the truth. Morality has prevailed. Now they killed my friend, of course. <laughs> but let the chips fall where they may. This truth for truth's sake, it's taken flight of any earthly consideration, of any particular contingent circumstance. That's the problem, right? As Stanley Horowitz has noted, only an ethics based on such an imperative can be autonomous. 
That is, it floats free of culture. It floats free of religion. It floats free of any kind of other presupposition. Only by acting on the basis of such an imperative can an agent be free, and such an ethic is based on reason alone and can therefore be distinguished from religion, politics, and etiquette. Think of the Nazis hunting down the Jews, and this is actually where Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem for participating in the slaughter of the Holocaust. He quotes the Kantian categorical imperative and says, I did my duty. I was morally good. Now it's true, we killed six million Jews, but I did my duty. I kept the law. I'm morally perfect. What this freedom gives rise to, even in Kant, Kant saw this, he calls it radical evil. Now he says, oh, wait a minute. If you've missed this, and of course that's what Eichmann is doing, it, a self-grounded system, a self-grounded reason gives rise to the kind of evil that historically and philosophically arise. It doesn't appeal to anything outside of itself, just its own reason. And radical evil, the, the notion that evil is its own ground. Of course, that's not true, right? All things are created by God. But in this understanding, the idea is that human beings can generate their own reason. We might think of the lie of the serpent in Genesis. You don't need the knowledge of God because you have the knowledge of good and evil and that is sufficient in and of itself. The lie of sin is the lie of radical evil. We might call it the covenant with death. That's what Isaiah calls it. It's the role of the diabolical. My point here is not, oh, radical evil is true or false. In the Bible, it's a false possibility. That is, you can believe a lie. It's a lie that is posed and acted upon as part of human reality. And interestingly, Kant hits upon the notion of radical evil as part of his depiction of human freedom and autonomy. That's right where it fits in the Bible. So my point here, what we call the moral law may be nothing more than the lie of sin and death, the law of sin and death. What Kant calls the categorical imperative may just be what Paul is describing as moral masochism, asceticism, in which one would serve the Father, thinking the Father is God, but the Father is your own creation. You've mistaken the law for God, and it's nothing other than your own image, your own father image. Of course, this is what Sigmund Freud calls the superego. It's what Paul calls the orientation of the law. That is the law gone bad. And so Kant's moral imperative or something like it has been taken up by societies and individuals in a pure form of deadly desire. And Paul calls this the body of death in Romans. Think of Paul's incapacity of will. He says, I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do, I don't do. Is that because Paul has a lack of a sense of duty? Or that he's ignorant of the law? I'm talking about Pharisaical Paul. There is no one more duty bound or more steeped in moral imperatives than Pharisaical Paul. 
But of course, this drives him to arrest Christians and to consent to their murder. That is, it's precisely the Pauline categorical imperative which makes him the chief of sinners. He says, I'm perfect in regard to the law. I'm perfect as a Jew. And this perfection, my moral perfection, made me the chief of sinners. Because I assumed that this law that I was serving was God. And it was not. You know, if we were to make a moral or religious argument of Paul's theology, I think we just need to flip it on its head. It's not an argument from human morality, but immorality. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. That's universal. And the exposure of the universal moral and religious failure in the Bible, I believe it weighs against any positive notion, any positive notion of either a moral, innate moral capacity or innate religious capacity. But I haven't wiped out the argument entirely because something is displaced in both the moral and religious experience of people, but this displacement or this negation also points to what is hidden in the understanding. You know, think of the Hebrew prophets when they come on the scene and they confront the idolaters. It's often depicted as lifting up the blanket. They're trying to hide it and then the prophet exposes what they're doing and they're brought to shame and they repent. They expose what was hidden. And this means that the hiding must include repression or hiding from the truth which the prophets bring to consciousness, right? Think of David before the prophet Nathaniel. David has killed Uriah. He's taken Bathsheba. And the prophet Nathan comes and tells him the story. You know, David, there was a man and he had a little lamb who was like a child to him. And the rich man next door came and said, I require your lamb because I'm having some guests for dinner and I'm going to cook him and roast him for dinner. You feel the tenderness between the man and his lamb. Nathan says, David, what should we do to this man? And David's angry. He said, we should punish him to the utmost. And Nathan says, David, you're the man. And David repents. Of course, he doesn't need anybody to tell him. He's the one guilty of murder. He's the one guilty of adultery. What was unconscious, what was repressed, is brought to full consciousness. Think of the hiding of Adam and Eve, the hiding of the Jews behind idolatrous religion. Or Paul describes it's actually a kind of hiding behind the law in Galatians. It's really dependent upon the negation, you know, where in idolatry God is made absent, but not completely absent, right? Paul's argument is not that this is a peculiar experience, that we're all called to repent. If we're all called to repent, at some level, we must know when we're participating in a falsehood. And so neither the typical religious or moral intuition point, I believe, in and of themselves to God in their positive form. In fact, in their positive form, 
They constitute a kind of self-grounding system, like the categorical imperative, like the radical evil. Think here of Paul in Romans 7. He describes one who is controlled by this absence and negation. God the Father is negated by his relationship to the law. He thinks, he confuses who God is with the law. His relationship to God is Abba Father in Christ. Life in the Spirit has been negated by death itself. Life in the Son is negated by the ego. That's your choice, life in Christ or attachment to the ego. And this Trinitarian negativity, it constitutes an identity in which God is absent. He's made absent. We refuse him. He's unavailable. But even in his absence, he's indicated in the Trinitarian dynamic of absence. And so trust in this system, in this law bound system. It gives rise to struggle, agony, suffering. For Paul, this is the source of all human mental suffering. It is the source of our suicidal inclinations. Now Paul believes in suffering of all kind, but the suffering that arises from you within you is brought on by this disease that he's describing, this evil. And to stick to the law, to stick to the categorical imperative, to stick to the lie of a radical evil, of an assurance that I can access God through reason. It means that you will never encounter the God of the Bible. And this is the danger which Paul warns of. I believe it's the danger implicit in the moral religious argument. It's the danger implicit in the rationality by which we're surrounded in this day and age. In which one will mistake the absolute of the moral law as I understand it, as if that's God. Now I don't know if this is a wholesale invalidation of the moral argument and the religious argument. But it certainly calls for an alternative understanding of reason, a relinquishing of the notion that there's access to a universal and definitive moral, moral law. But maybe I've just said a very simple thing. You're saying, oh, great, now you're going to make it simple. And that is that there is access to God only through Christ because of human sin. But even this understanding contains its own moral and religious argument because even in God's absence or his seeming absence, he has left the trace of his presence. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.